Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates, as you know, we often explore the journey of an enterprise, the grit, the challenge, the success of building an organization. And today's episode features the foundational roots of the entrepreneurial journey. All organizations at some point are founded. Stride, Curriculum Associates, Discovery, they were an idea. Today, we're joined by a founder, successfully navigating the birth of an organization into an emerging market leader. Today's episode of Capital Class, we are joined by Mo Arbaji, founder and CEO of Char Talk. Mo, welcome to Capital Class. Thanks for having me, Adam. You know, we're so happy to have you on the show, Mo. Uh, for me, obviously, the story's personal. An investor, former board member. Your story is both unique and common. Common in that most founders see a problem and they solve it. Yet yours feels different. Growing up in Jordan, immigrating alone to New Mexico, on scholarship, by the way, to go to Brown University, again, on scholarship, to found a small business creating SAT and ACT guides for ELL students, two things that you uniquely understand, right? The challenges and importance of education and also being a former ELL student yourself. This experience leads you to Chalk Talk, right? And I think that's such a unique story. Can you take us back to like the early days of Mo in America, right? And the importance of that experience as your journey as a founder. Absolutely. Uh, we're going way back. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> so uh, landed here, 16 years old, got the scholarship for this boarding school. The campus looks like Hogwarts. That's the first thing I see. <laughs> Dorm is like the 11th most historic castle in North America. And everybody's on scholarship, right? 200 kids, more than 100 countries. A movement founded by Nelson Mandela, Prince Charles of the UK, Queen of Jordan, a bunch of world leaders said, like, what if we get kids ages 16 to 18 from every country around the world and just have them room together before nationalist, fundamentalist, idealist, activist uh, concepts are formed and just have the mix. And it was a phenomenal experience. The roommate first year was from Swaziland. I still speak a little Siswati, means a frog. And then the second year, my roommate was from Kentucky, and it was just a crazy, wild experience. People just showing up in national outfits, right? Everybody's on scholarship. And that's what I was thrown into. And um, ended up there because I won the, lo- the, the lottery, the parent and the teacher lottery. I just had phenomenal, supportive teachers 
and parents who emphasized the importance of education because I didn't grow up to a very wealthy family. And they explained that education is how you make your own. And then from there, Brown was very generous, gave me a full ride. And all throughout there, I was thinking, you know, talent across, uh, throughout my journey, I was thinking talent across the world is universal, right? It's everywhere. But access to opportunity is not. And there are ways to get access. There is nepotism or favoritism or, uh, uh, you know, meeting the right person, etc. But education, luckily, is, is still among the world's greatest equalizer, if I may say, like, the world's greatest equalizer. So, you know, I was thinking there's 9 billion people, billion in K-12 schools. That's the, really the foundation of humanity and the world as an entire planet. And... The core skills for success in life is reading, writing, math, and perhaps one technical skill, right? If you know how to read, you enjoy reading, you know how to write, write a good email, write a blog post, whichever it is, uh, you know math at, at the most basic, some algebra one, some uh, arithmetic, and you pick up a passion, you're set for life. So when we're reviewing, like, how do we advance humanity as a whole and give people opportunity and, like, equalize the playing field, it just stood out to me that K-12 literacy and numeracy is is going to be a thing, is, is how we start. And started off, uh, you know, summer. Actually, couldn't really go home during winter break, so I stayed on campus, and Providence, Rhode Island is a pretty cold place, so... <laughs> it was an empty campus, so I wrote a few books on SAT and ACT, as you mentioned, for English language learners. That summer break, I knocked door to door in one of the neighborhoods in Amman, Jordan, and got 16 kids to uh, somehow uh, let me tutor them. Fast forward, by the time I graduated, it was a franchise running in three countries in Bahrain, Egypt, and Jordan. But it, <laughs> it wasn't... It was it was good, but it wasn't as as fulfilling because it was mostly helping wealthier international students get into college in the U.S., which is good. But I really wanted something ground up, and I thought, okay, well, why is tutoring expensive? Because you got to rent a place and have tutors, etc. Well, guess who already has buildings and teachers, schools? Is is there something I could do for a dollar a month or just a very low amount, a couple bucks a month, really? Uh, versus you know, tutoring prices are, are, are really high uh, and enable teachers something cheaper than a textbook. Uh, so saving costs, but also enabling teachers and districts to deliver these high quality learning experiences for students that bring them together versus technology that divides. And that seed became Choctaw. So that's the backstory of how we got here. Incredible. Incredible. You know, Alex Lazarell, author of 99% Tech and How to Out-Innovate uh, Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit, Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. In his book, right, he highlights this notion of founders not from Silicon Valley. Right? Founders around the world are creating these incredibly innovative businesses and that the skills, the shrewdness, the cultural differences that they've, these founders have from their local communities give them an advantage for business success, right? That kind of, that ability to just make it happen. And as a former board member of yours, I can definitely attest that your drive, your deal-making skills are, are driven, I think, some from what you've experienced, maybe be it family, cultural, 
uh, back from you know your home to, your homeland of Jordan. I mean, do you feel growing up in a different culture helps you as a CEO? Absolutely, hugely helpful. Um, because when you're growing up anywhere, you're growing up among a herd of folks of a similar mentality, similar outlook. And then I just got thrown into that uh, international school, literally uh, 200 kids from all around the world. And everybody's asking all these in-depth questions that I don't really ask because every, I don't get to ask because everybody just has the same bubble, whatever that bubble be. And that was the starting point. And it really uh, helped, you know, form, you know, take my identity of growing up in Jordan. And while that is still intact, it gave me a new identity and it's a global identity. And that was really the birth of something special. And other than that, I think when, you know, one of the adventures I spoke about of education before is a tool for reading, writing, learning, access, skills, but there is education can be a gateway for many other pieces. And for me, education was a window into an F1 visa and immigration and opportunity, which is kind of an interesting angle. Think about education. Um, but really, you know, when I landed here and I just got the exposure with whether it's high school, Brown, I knew I wanted to also work here. And I had you know, this, this, uh, this innate kind of um, uh, fight or flight response where I really wanted to create something amazing and continue uh, to be in the US. And I actually had just a very long journey. I'm looking right here. I have USCIS gives you the, the booklet to practice for your citizenship interviews in about six months. After being here for more than a decade, I'm, uh, I'm due for the naturalization process. And uh, I think that that journey of an immigrant and just seeking um, a better future and, and not just for myself, but for my family and generations to come, it's definitely played a role in, uh, in how I, I chose to make some of these actions and, and, uh, and, and build a life for myself. In some ways, it's a superpower, right? In the sense that, and I'll just speak from my own. New York has a, I don't want to, want to call it a hustle culture. You live there, you see it. It does, <laughs> it does. And that drive translated for things in my life, and I, I think when we think about investors, and we, I think just development, right? A lot of that feels like, oh, well, that's something that somebody else does. Right. Or that's something that happens in mm -hmm. California only. And at least from Alex's book and then in my own time, especially working with you, you start to really open your eyes that there are that there is a lot of power in getting diversity of thought from wherever that may come from to power an organization forward. And yeah. not having the kind of homogenistic, like this is how businesses are built, right? This is the playbook. It actually gives greater chance of success. And I think you, you proved that from day one. Yeah. It's 52%. I think of Silicon Valley companies were, are founded by immigrants. So including, you know, the Google and the Tesla and the, uh, uh, even Apple and all of those. So that's, uh, I think there's just a, an innate survival component as well. Mm. And that uh, also kicks in and, and it drives forward. 
and you know there's there's also you need to be very passionate about what you're doing what you're doing and i was lucky in that i found something that i'm passionate about and um i was able to change my life with it and now really excited uh for working with some of the largest uh, with some of the largest districts in the nation for helping their students graduate improve their learning outcomes up to six times higher than those who are not using the program and it's just really gratifying and fulfilling there's a world of r&d right where like someone goes out and gets a report or <laughs> they read a book you took a totally different perspective as you started chalk talk which was you actually went into the classroom to learn what teachers need. How foundational, I think even now as you interact with school districts, but also from when you were building the core pillars of Choctaw, how foundational was that experience? Yeah, I'd say that's a learned skill because that was not the very, very early days. I... Um, I I had a hypothesis and I thought, okay, let's prove it. And we built the wrong thing before we built the right thing. So what happened is, um, you know, I thought, well, personalized learning was still like a newer thing back in school. And I was thinking, okay, well, um, let's try to give the students a test and based on the results, give them videos and questions that cater to their strengths and weaknesses. And there were some success stories of doing these individual learning paths, um, and, you know, companies, mostly in the adult learning space, like a masterclass or Khan Academy. And I thought, okay, well, let's go ahead and do something like that. That makes sense. You know, no two students are the same, so they shouldn't be taught the same way. And I approached it from an engineer's perspective, which were two of my degrees in undergrad. Um, and the problem with that approach is, you know, when we launched that with a couple of schools, we had eight percent completion rate so we were at a fork uh, we either say hey self-paced online courses like MOOCs have completion rates of three and a half percent so we're more than double that and wrap it up in a uh, vanity metrics kind of thing but we know something's off with eight percent or really dig in and try to understand what's going on and um went to East Boston High School, the largest high school in the city of Boston, Boston Public Schools. Phil, uh, Phil the principal's there, phenomenal educator. He also went to East Boston High School and, and played sports there when he was younger. And I said, Phil, I'd like to just sit in on classes. And, and if you allow me, I'd like to actually teach the first few classes and uh, sit and observe teachers also teaching classes. And my goal there was just to understand like what are the building blocks that they're doing that we're not doing. And then I had I sat there and watched the students use the program that we had the self-paced at the time. And I remember one of the students, and I thought back there, it's, it's the best stuff ever, right? Like personalized to your own path of what? That's, that's amazing. And then I saw a student dozing off and... Uh, I remember that, that student vividly and I talked to him after and I was like, listen, I'm the founder. I'm genuinely getting advice. Like I'm not giving you a grade, like what's going on here. And he's like, I work 20 hours. I was like, Oh wow. That's half a work week. Like, are you that, that, that's crazy. So seven days, like 20 hours. He's like, no, no last weekend, Right, 11th grade students, East Boston High School, high population of low income, homeless population. Um, 
and he lives with a single mother, and he's the main breadwinner for the family. And that's when it hit me. Here we are building a little cliffy type of widgets and this game and points and personalized pathway. And like the reason these kids, like students like that student aren't learning is because of being bought in, motivated. Like they have all these obligations. They're social emotional learning. They're humans. You know, we, we personalize learning, but dehumanize education. And that's when we took a step back and I asked him, okay, well, why do you come to school then if you're tired and all of that? And he said, I come to school to hang out with my teacher and friends. I was like, okay, that's when it clicked. All these apps, what we were doing is turning classrooms into an experience where it's kids looking at screen, click, 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 video question, video question. Great. Personalized human dehumanize, personalized education, dehumanize it, but dehumanize it. So like, well, let's go ahead and make that piece that does this adaptive practice, top-of-notch algorithms, a homework portal or a small compressed part. But let's now create an experience when the kids take a test, the teachers can log in and they'll get lesson plans and mm. teaching activities where the group of students can talk to them. And let's also build an experience where kids can talk to each other. Let's put the person back in personalized learning. We did that. Results exploded. Results absolutely exploded. So had to build the wrong thing before we learn, but uh, definitely it was transformative when we took that approach of instead of saying let's go ahead and disrupt, change, update all the let's just go ahead and find out what's happening and find out what people need help with, what the student needs help with, what the principal needs help with, what the teacher needs help with, and build that. And that's what we did. That is incredibly refreshing when. I'll speak from, you know, the organization that um, I'm a part of. We are the recipients of hundreds of good ideas, right? Which is to say, companies built, it's an interesting idea that no school district or state has ever asked us about, <laughs> right? And unlike, unlike any other sector, this is my personal view. Like you don't come up with solutions for the legal field unless you're probably a former lawyer or you have connectivity to that space. Same with engineering and others, right? And there's an outlier to this, but for the majority of cases. And it's because people's experience with that sector is limited unless you committed yourself to that field. But yet mm -hmm. everybody went to school. And so I'll meet with investors that are asking me about a product or a concept and to them, it's interesting through their own lens. Like, yeah, when I was a kid, this would have been great. But they're nice-to-haves. They're not need-to-haves. And what you did was, I think, really, really important for other founders to listen and even other, other companies to hear, which is like, stop building solutions and bringing them to districts. Ask the districts what they need. How does your solution help them reach those goals? And I think if more and more organizations did that, they wouldn't have to rely on 100 sequence cold emails to get people to take a call or a meeting, right? You'd be helping them achieve their goal. No one works at a school because they're there to make money and they hate kids. Like they're, they love kids and they want to make impact. Help them make impact. 100%. Right? 100%. And uh, – I, I think a lot a lot of times 
what happens is you have technologists, engineers coming in and they're like, well, this is a great app. If they drop everything they're doing in their eight hour workday and switch over to this app, like we're going to get results. <laughs> and that might be true if they generally drop everything they're doing and abandon right. the school system, and we're going to get results. But, um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz has, has this blog post where they talk about products that bank on uh, changing the consumer behavior from scratch, fundamentally U-turn for an entire segment, right. are often destined to fail because you have a theory and you're like, oh, this whole unproven thing is better than this other thing versus looking at talking to the users, find out exactly what they need and just what they want and building that. And and I've seen a lot of implementations within that in K-12 EdTech, uh, but the ones that did pivot or start talking to users are, are the ones that are solving real problems. And I think that that's a really important feature. And I'm, you know, some of these are current clients, former clients, but I'll call it curriculum associates. You know, when I, and there I get it. People have a wide range of how they feel about that organization, but you know, a hundred updates a year, a hundred investments in their business a year, changing, evolving. Right. And I meet the CEO uh, on a number of occasions. He's like, I just want to be intimate with what teachers want. Like, mm -hmm. Wow. You know, like I want to know what kids care about. I want to know that. And like, that's a, that's a departure, right? A lot of times I hear about EBITDA revenue adoption rates. And, um, I think your company parallels that as well, right? It's, you really talk a lot about impact helping kids. And your initial sector was at ACT, SAT, because that really is a gateway into, a, you know, the next level of education. And I, I not only respect it, I appreciate it. I believe in it. Yeah, and it's a, it's a gated gateway. When you take a look at these scores versus uh, average household income for certain zip codes, it's a very linear yeah. route uh, because of access to these opportunities. So we go back to uh, equity. And giving access, not everybody should go to college, but you should have the right to do so if you'd like. And we started there and went all the way down to kindergarten. Uh, but the premise is still the same. Everybody, it's not like, oh, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at reading. Every kid is a math kid. Every kid is a reading kid and every kid is a writing kid, 100%. And it's just how do you get that out of them and instill the confidence, the motivation, the excitement, things that computers and technology can help with, but they will never be able to supplant and replace your friends at school and the teachers at school. And uh, that's, that's really the area that we're, we're delving down on. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why we have these uh, uh, high renewal rates and success rates with the impact. And I want to highlight the other component you mentioned, the impact engine. Um, most companies or a lot of companies, K-12 and, uh, and other, uh, really have conversations about activity, engagement, these types of things. It is considered to be uh, an exception when we're talking to folks, the fact that we have built also an impact engine despite the grade level of pre and post. Even in the absence of a national benchmark assessment like the SAT or ACT, you were able to do a formative assessment or a unit test mm -hmm. or a whole summative mm -hmm. assessment, regardless of the grade level before and after. And leading with that level of transparency and the data is usually greatly appreciated by the districts or 
used to seeing exclusively engagement reports and activity reports. And that's an area you have a special engagement team dedicated to. They're always expanding on that. What's your view on the role of the teacher, both from the understanding of, I think, the external audience, right? Like what people think outside the room or outside the building and their value in the learning process. Yeah. So the teacher, uh, you know, they, they do, I think from the external view, people are seeing, okay, here's a knowledge bank and that knowledge bank is now disseminating the information to the students. Some people are doing a direct instruction, maybe problem-based learning, collaborative learning, uh, but it's a knowledge bank that is the teaching through the dissemination of the information in their bank. but what research has shown is really when what makes the best teachers the best at what they do isn't that they have slightly more understanding of algebra or greatly even more understanding of algebra one, or they have a another tactic that they could employ by a little bit and then get results. What makes them really great and deliver huge learning outcomes for the students is they get to know their students as people for who they are. They establish their friendships. They Mm -hmm. develop their secret handshakes. They talk about them about life after school. Perhaps there's also, they're also a coach for them for a a football team after school. These are the things. So when people say personalized learning, personalizing it down to, you know, making the next question adaptive in a practice session, which by the way, we do too, is is helpful but the most important part of personalized learning like the personalizing aspect is something that teachers do which is really getting to know their their students as people right and making them feel like they care about them they are important and they can do the thing you can do math you can do reading you can't it's not like oh this is the pull-out group the intervent like oh no i'm i gotta focus with these students you know these things really carry a lot of weight with with students throughout their lifetime, not just school. And teachers are able to navigate, you know, this distribution of information mm-hmm. while also navigating, the, you know, the and uh, the importance of recognizing each student as a person and connecting with them that way have phenomenal outcomes. Mo, I couldn't agree more. For me, bottom line, teachers are champions, mm-hmm. and. They're the conduit to bring all the things, all the tools, the books, the apps, all the research. It's clear, right? It cannot supplant an educator. Mm-hmm. And I, for one, you know, that was my original uh, profession of choice, right? But for a recession, I'd probably be in a classroom. I worry about where we're going with the educator, right? Them feeling less. And and maybe that's just a few voices screaming it from the rooftops and the majority feel this way. I, I greatly appreciate the teachers that teach my daughter and, and soon to be son. But um, I don't know, Mo. You know, I think we've we've tried to take so much of the educator and simplify it or homogenize it, right? Every educator does this. And I think what some of the best educators have proven is to your point, right? 
it's not about being a master of the content. It's about being a master of the children. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's, that's a great summary. And one of the points that you're talking about is uh, that teachers are burnt out and they feel underappreciated. 2022 was dubbed uh, by many leading publications as the great resignation. Teachers were leaving in droves uh, and at an unprecedented rate. So we have folks who are teaching, uh, you know, with Chalk Talk Algebra 1 courses right now around the nation who are drivers ed teachers or athletic coaches, and they're just picking up. And, you know, we make it intuitive for for folks to come in and, and help teach. But we're, when we're talking with administration, teacher shortages are real. And when you take a look at the research, it, teachers have the highest burnout out of any other profession in the U.S., more than 50% the average of all other industries combined. Again, more than 50% average of all industries combined. Higher even than nurses, which track second. And the, you know, the, the pay isn't fully there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're certainly finding uh, teacher burnout to be a big piece. And and that is an angle that we decided to double down on. Yes, personalized learning and making the homework adapt and all these pieces are important for the student account, but let's make life as easy as possible for teachers with the lesson plans and instructional content and grouping activities, edit ability, collaboration. All these pieces are our most used features in the program and are most loved. Well, we talk a lot about the journey of the enterprise, right? And I think you're on the front end, right? There's more chapters to be written about your book of the Chalk Talk experience, right? The Chalk Talk growth. Take us through the experience of you've got a company, it's viable, you're seeing success, and now it's time to raise money. You know, less about the people or, you know, anything that's really descriptive, but more about like the emotions, the feelings, like, how important is that process? You know what what were you able to do with funding? How important was it to pick the right the right organization? Right, because I think money is somewhat everywhere, right? But it's whom you're invested with. I think is really important. Absolutely, great, great question. It's it's uh, suddenly a second full time job on top of your already full time job that's already longer than a full time job because you're growing <laughs> and you don't want to hire other people. So now you've got three jobs. And you can't really pause one. You you just really can't. You've got to somehow figure out how to do how to get back some of that time. And you start installing. I started installing some apps, some which are really helpful, like Superhuman, really cut down a couple hours a day from email and a couple of other things. But you're literally optimizing down to the minute to regain some of that time back. And um, you know, starting this, uh, uh, you know, one you you have to put down a whole plan and and be strategic about it so we went through an accelerator program right before the raise with the era phenomenal group based out of new york city and then we had demo day and and ahead of demo day where they invited a lot of investors i went ahead and there was a audrey waters who writes a lot of tech uh, blogs she has a github where she documented uh, all the ethic investors and which investments they made that and Crunchbase and I scraped all the data and made 
a database of everybody who's invested in EdTech, uh, from very specialist EdTech funds to even Ashton Kutcher and Adam Levine were, were on there. They put in some money and some uh, company through their, their investment funds from 2010 until 2020. Everything is just fully there, documented. And then I stack ranked all of them based on who is K-12 or who might have strategic um, value add. For example, we had a lot of traction in Florida because we focused on Florida. Florida, California, and Texas have more than a third of the students in America. But each of California and Texas have more than a thousand districts. Florida, 67. So you're really able to maximize your impact footprint quickly uh, uh, if you operate there. And with all these variables that are important to us, you know, K-12, B2B, uh, perhaps Florida representation, all these things, we went to the demo day and then we got to meet uh, some of these folks on that list and uh, tapped uh, Florida funders for leading the round. Uh, and which is how we're introduced. And, and that was absolutely a great journey. And then from that, also, we got ECMC in a follow-up round who is um, K-12 EdTech specific, as well as other funds throughout. And it, it's, it sounds like a lot of work going and scraping data from all these sites and putting a spreadsheet and stack racking and variables and going through the process of a three-month accelerator and then with it just to get that first check. And it is. <laughs> it's just, it just, it just is. Yeah, and I, we did it because we enjoyed the journey, but also um, that's really what goes behind the scenes in in raising a fundraising round, especially if you want to bring the right folks on board and not just you know get a check. I think a lot of entrepreneurs approach investing as a one sided conversation of like, hey, what can I? Uh, portray myself on the best side to get the check and then I just leave it and operate. But really, it's a two-way partnership because you're locked in all the way uh, through exit. And um, uh, so one of the questions that I always ask is, what are some of the ways that you've helped your portfolio companies, uh, add value to your portfolio companies outside capital injection? Do you do follow-ons? Um, have you invested in uh, ethic? Have you invested in K-12 ethic? Who are, who are your advisors in the space? And that's really important. Not only is it just to add value, but it also shows credibility that you're also doing your research, right? So uh, all of that went into um, that first funding round, venture funding round, and it was a learned process. We meet during that process, right? Florida funders asked yes. me to take a look at the deal, to take a look at your business. I immediately fall... You know, admittedly, uh, head over for you, right? And I'm like, this guy's great. You get your first check, and I feel as if the founder world, and admittedly, I don't have experience in this, right? We uh, have bootstrapped strategists, so it's a little different. There's, It seems to me you have to walk a tightrope, all founders who take investment. One is this pull of growth. Everybody wants more growth reporting more growth, showing more growth, right? There's kind of this trickle down of people you're answering to mm -hmm. on the growth side, but then also being prudent, which is historically code word for slow. You know, you've navigated this quite well, but also have had to make some tough decisions. When you reflect on even the early days of your business, any sort of lessons learned in that process? Yeah, 
I think the most important piece, and I really appreciate that framing. I think a lot of people, when they hear that question, they'll be able to relate to it, even outside K-12 and EdTech as folks who raise money. I I think, you know, the, the most important thing is uh, being transparent and over-communicative about the plans and radical candor about what's going well, what's pivoting, what you're doing, because you're bringing in, them in as part of the process, the leading indicators, not just the lag indicators of once a year, here's my update, right? And they're getting to see you work through that process. And I think for, for K-12, on, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, especially uh, for some founders of the K-12 space, there is a sales cycle, especially if you're selling directly to school districts. So if you run the course, they're going to get their money on July 1st, then they'll end the Q2, lots of Q3. There's going to be a lot of activity. You know, Q4 is more about the lead generation. Q1 is more about the demo. And then after that, it's they put you in the budget in Q2 and Q3 is the release of POs. And it does cycle. And I think it's really important to, um, if you don't work with a K-12 specialist investor to be able to share that information uh, because it's your responsibility as an entrepreneur to be able to share that. And and we got lucky in that you were introduced by the fund and you're able to share that information and we were aligned on the same page there. But My that pleasure. doesn't mean that, it, uh, for sure, and that doesn't mean that like you, um, just because they know that it's like an annual sales cycle a little bit longer, you cannot uh not grow because it's really important even as a business to have impact that keeps mm-hmm. extending more students need this product for their impact the sales cycle might be a little bit longer but a year-on-year basis you're able to show that accelerated growth and in 2021 we tripled us-based revenue in 2022 we ended the year tripling again we're in the multi-million dollar uh error club and this year we're tripling again and it doesn't happen on a weekly basis, right? right? Sometimes not even monthly, but progress is monumental on a weekly or monthly basis. So you just got to be looking at the right KPIs. And for anybody who has seasonal business and being able to get really close with the funds and just sharing knowledge, because everybody would love to learn, is really important for you all to stay on the same page and not have any misalignment. It's really not. It's really important for you guys all to have the same conversation, versus there be two parallel conversations and email exchanges in between. How do you measure progress? Not just revenue, right? Those are tangible numbers, but what people don't see, and I'll compliment you. I get emails and calls from you at nine, ten, yeah. eleven, <laughs> right? weekends, holidays, you know, how are you measuring progress today versus maybe when you started? Absolutely. I'm, I'll tell you the first thing that jumped to mind, but I'll tell you the, the formulated answer. The first thing that jumped to mind immediately is we have a Slack channel called G underscore customer feedback. Uh, and it's literally anybody who's talking to a customer of the company, usually account manager, customer support, just posting quotes. Wow. Right, like one quote that we got uh, was from Miami. I think it was Ferguson, Ferguson High School, and they talked about ninety percent uh, graduation rate for kids who literally took the Florida State test first and then uh, failed. They took it once, they failed. They got enrolled in Choctaw one semester, ninety percent passed. Wow. The teacher is Pascal. There you go. Um, 
And when we see that volume, and now it just it's it's volume, right? Like it's frequency. It's not like oh, once every couple of months or something. There's a high volume of quotes in there. There were a couple yesterday, a couple today already. And for me, that's just the charge for my battery and everybody else's battery because this is hard work. And just seeing that impact is really, really important. Like shrinking the 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 bridge between everybody at the company and just sales and engineering, everybody, and then the student going through the admin, the teacher, the student. The whole thing is really important. Um, that's that's uh, that's the most important one. Now, the second part of my brain uh, goes towards the, the 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 mechanical KPIs and and all these pieces. I'm I'm a big fan. Like as you first start, you're looking at smaller things, but as the company grows, things become aggregate. So finding compound KPIs that give you a, a really high level view if that sector, whatever that sector is within the company is crushing it, extremely healthy, or it's something that might need additional support is really important. Good example is magic number, which is a number that means how much you spent on sales and marketing, uh, including the commissions and benefits, etc., and software versus how much was that able to generate. And if that number is above 1, 1. 1.5, that means that people really like what you have and you keep staying the course. Um, there are other KPIs like this within sales, within, uh, sorry, within uh, engineering, within product, within content. These are all the leading measures. And then the lagging measure is these quotes and these customer conversations. I still do these, uh, the largest district teacher trainings till this day, fly out there, waking up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., get the donuts, go to districts and just talk to administrators, the teachers, and have these conversations. That's the most important thing. And uh, the last thing I'll add here is, uh, when you brought up Curriculum Associates earlier, because I know there, I believe the CEO still interviews, no matter how large the company is, they still interview every single person the company brings. And it's it's a different angle of the same card of being able to do all these in-person trainings and have the direct communication. The minute you step away and you're only looking at the KPI dashboard, that's when you start being disconnected and you make really bad decisions. Mo, I love it. Mo, a lot of entrepreneurs begin to embody their business, right? Their business is their life. It's who they, how they present themselves. And that makes it hard to turn off, unplug. What is it that people don't see about you? How do you recharge? How do you reset? Yeah, I believe, um, I think work-life balance is perhaps a misnomer. It's like work-life contrast. You show up to work, you are excited about what you do and you have intentions without attachment to the outcome, meaning you just do your absolute best and don't get paralyzed by stress or anxiety. What if this goes this way or that way? Like you're just going in maximum number of hours you can because it's what you enjoy. <laughs> and, and then, and then uh, uh, everybody has their way of uh, relaxing and, um, for me, I really enjoy music, write some spoken word, uh, make some beats, uh, lots of like lots of quality time. I'm really big on quality time. Family lives in Jordan, try to visit them uh, often, friends in New York. So really big on these parts and, and, and savoring that 
limited these limited windows of free time whenever I can. We actually have a portion of our team as well in Jordan. And Jordan works Sunday through Thursday. And U.S. is Monday through Friday. So I'm on six days a week. Uh, but, but I really, you know, it's off time. Like it's uh, go to the gym or dinner. I'm just focused at this other activity uh, versus, so, so I, yeah, I really believe in work-life contrast and, and doing both to the max versus like a, a balance. And it served me well. We'll see what happens when. When when get married and have a baby, probably <laughs> it's gonna be a whole a whole thing. But that's uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. I say this to our team, right? It's about at least for me. When I'm at home, my family, I'm a hundred percent home, my family. And when I'm at work, I'm a hundred percent at work, and I'm okay. I some have said, "Oh, isn't that balance?" Maybe, right? Like I go away and I turn my phone off. And like the business will live. If it doesn't, frankly, we have a weak business. And I think that there's a lot of importance for me leaving the business is really, really refreshing because I generally come back like eager, like what happened? Where are we? Right? Like, and the team has created so many new things. It's like, I, I, to me, that's a litmus test. Like if I'm excited turn back on the phone, figure out what's going on, check up with my team, you know, my partners, I have seven now, not uncommon to be on a weekend or driving home and just to call one of them mm-hmm. and not for work, just to talk. And I think that there's that, 100%. that recharge, at least for me, like allowing that to your point, this contrast is really important. And I'm, I don't apologize for it. I'm okay with it. And my family knows this. You know, I won't be at dinner on my phone and I won't be with friends writing emails, but when I'm at work, I'm at work and I'm okay with mm-hmm. that. A hundred percent. And it's funny you talk about a similar example, uh, about the, you know, people you work with, you call, but it's after hours and you just chat life, you know, our CO Eddie, I've known him for a decade. We, uh, we roomed together shortly after college uh and for actually five uh over on and off different courses five years between san francisco boston new york and we're really good friends uh and you know i was a uh, best man his wedding and a uh, great person and i never really actually thought about this until you said it but whenever i work it's just like normal like that's the norm slack called etc zoom and we're just dialed in and we both work long hours, uh, but let's say like it's Saturday, 9 p.m., just catching up, like call him like it. he knows I'm just going to catch up about something else. And it's just the, there's the friendship part and the, uh, the relationship that we have, which is really, really strong, but also there's the work part. And you're able to maintain both when you work with really high quality people. And I'm lucky to work with... Uh, uh, lots of other, you know, phenomenal, high-quality people and a great team. But what a great episode. We get all of our guests out here with our Fast Four. Okay? It's a rapid answer. And uh, the more candid, the better. As an entrepreneur, what trends are emerging that interest you? They could be outside of your own business. Generative AI, for sure. And not for the for the production of 
just more content, but generative AI as a thing to make learning more human. So we're using it already to recontextualize our question bank based on your interest. So if you're interested in sport and you take our statistics course in Chalk Talk, we're changing the question stems and the context to be about picking lineups for basketball starting five or a draft for the NFL and really using generative AI not to make school boring, but make it more human and attached to the people's interests. And I find that really exciting. Wow. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. Wadi Rum in Jordan. That's where they film all the Mars movies, and it's pretty wild. Highly recommend. And then you can go to Petra, which is one of the ancient seven wonders, just half an hour away. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year? Oof, greatest area of growth for me in the coming year. Being able to prioritize effectively because I can't do everything as we continue to scale and be able to just bring in the lieutenants and prioritize and, and take the company through the next chapter. Favorite podcast that everyone should be listening to. Well, this one and the knowledge project. I'll <laughs> <laughs> like too. <laughs> the knowledge project. Okay. I'll get you out of here. One last one. Coffee in Jordan or coffee in America. Which one's stronger? Oh, man. <laughs> I, remember, I remember Eddie went and visited, because uh, he grew up in Connecticut, he went to visit the the, the Jordan uh, office. And yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, give me a large. And they're like, large? Are you sure? Because like, yeah, the Turkish coffee is like a small. It's like, yeah. yeah, he had one sip and he just like couldn't sleep. <laughs> so, I, uh, yeah, definitely Jordan. <laughs> I landed in, in Jordan and they were, they were in the airport, beautiful airport. And they're handing out coffee. And I'm like, oh, I'll have a coffee. <laughs> I was probably awake for a week. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't agree. Mo. That's why when I drink the U.S. coffee, I have the big mug with me. It's already <laughs> at the <laughs> Mo, thank you for sharing an incredible story and for joining us on the show. I speak for many of us. We can't wait to watch your growth. We're believers, and we wish you well. Thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed.